From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Anybody who's come and turned the lens onto the United States from outside, who have um, experienced or studied war-torn societies, uh, is, is deeply troubled by the things that they're seeing here in the United States now. And if we saw this in another country that was one of our closest allies, we'd be trying to stage an intervention. That's Dr. Fiona Hill. She's a foreign policy expert at the Brookings Institution, specializing in Russian and European affairs. From 2017 to 2019, she served as a senior director on the National Security Council, where she was the Trump administration's top Russia advisor. You may remember Dr. Hill as a key witness in the first impeachment of Donald Trump, the one that centered around his efforts to get Ukraine to announce an investigation into Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. If the president or anyone else impedes or subverts the national security of the United States in order to further domestic, political or personal interests, that's more than worthy of your attention. But we must not let domestic politics stop us from defending ourselves against the foreign powers who truly wish us harm. Now she's out with a new book, There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Dr. Hill joins me to discuss her unique upbringing, what she witnessed and endured in the Trump White House, and the potential for America to slip into autocracy. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Before I get to your questions, just a quick note that we here at CAFE still love to receive questions in the form of voicemails. Lately, we've observed that most folks tend to send their questions on Twitter or over email, but sometimes the old ways are the best ways. If you'd like to hear your question played on the air, go ahead and leave us a voicemail at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PRE. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from listener Beth Adaimi. Apologize if I didn't pronounce that correctly. Beth asks, does the former guy's pardon somehow cover Bannon's actions leading up to January 6th? I know it would not cover contempt of Congress should the Justice Department choose to pursue it. So that's an interesting question. Obviously, you're referring to the pardon that Steve Bannon got ostensibly for his role in a conspiracy to get money from people in connection with building a wall with private funds at the southern border. Notably, as I've mentioned on the show many times before, a few months ago, 
that case out of the Southern District of New York charged Steve Bannon and three other people, and the other folks were not pardoned, only Steve Bannon was. Now, the interesting thing is, with respect to the actions relating to January 6th, the insurrection, remember, Trump didn't leave office till January 20th. He actually was within his rights and powers and authorities as president under the Constitution to essentially preemptively pardon people who were involved in that event. It would essentially be a little bit like what Gerald Ford did with respect to draft evaders. He didn't enumerate every single person by name, identify them by name, rank, and serial number, so to speak. But a general pardon for people who had done that was permitted to be granted. Based on the language of the pardon here, though, I think we don't have to worry that Bannon is covered for the January 6th activities. The statement released in connection with Trump's pardon of Bannon seems very specifically tied to the actual charges and indictment brought against him by the Southern District of New York. This statement read, prosecutors pursued Mr. Bannon with charges related to fraud stemming from his involvement in a political project. That fraud clearly is referring to the previously charged case. So Bannon will not have the same luck if and when he gets charged with anything related to January 6th. This question comes in a tweet from Ted Hadamer. Is it up to Merrick Garland singularly to decide if Steve Bannon will be arrested and prosecuted for ignoring a legal U.S. House subpoena? So that's a good question. You know, we've talked about it, uh, Joyce and I have, on the Cafe Insider podcast. The statute that relates to this is Title II, U.S. Code 194, and it makes particular reference to the appropriate U.S. attorney. Once the House has voted, as the House now has, with respect to the case of Steve Bannon, a referral is made, quote, to the appropriate United States attorney whose duty it shall be to bring the matter before the grand jury for its action, end quote. Now, as I've discussed before, the Justice Department doesn't read the word shall in the way that some other statutes are interpreted and believes that it retains discretion to bring a case or not bring a case. But even though the statute makes reference to the, quote, appropriate United States attorney, end quote, obviously in a case of this magnitude, the significance that everyone is going to be watching the acting U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia is not going to take such action and make that decision without consultation with Merrick Garland. So I think it really will be effectively the decision of Merrick Garland, as you put it, singularly. This next question comes in a tweet from Kathleen Moore, who expresses a sentiment that's pretty common, that I've heard a lot with respect to the January 6th insurrection, and that I've heard a lot over the years of my career as a prosecutor. And she asks, why is it taking so long to arrest and prosecute the planners of the January 6th insurrection? Now, obviously, scores and scores of people have been arrested for participating in the insurrection, charged around the country in federal court, charges of varying degrees of seriousness. There have been guilty pleas. There has been sentencing. But the question as to the planners is something that I hear all the time. And what I, what I usually answer is, you know, these things take time. Evidence takes time to gather. Leads take time to pursue. I thought I would, on this occasion, do what I sometimes do and answer a question from a listener with the words of someone else. Uh, and in this case, and you, you may not love these words, Bradley Moss, who is a national security lawyer and often represents whistleblowers in his practice, had the following thread in response to questions like this on Twitter. And so if you're angry about his response, you can tweet at him. And Bradley Moss has this to say, quote, some of you on this website need to crack open a beer, pour a glass of wine, or simply log off for a moment. Enough with the why hasn't Garland arrested person A over crime X stuff already. 
you're starting to sound like the MAGA folks towards the end of Trump's tenure. If there is a case to be made against a member of Congress or their staff tied up in what happened on January 6th, I'm confident Garland will let DOJ pursue it to the end. I've seen nothing that indicates he views the events of that day as anything less than an attempted coup. What he is not going to do is authorize arrests just to make you all feel better. He wants a case that will win, not just a case for the sake of having a case and the media splash. That requires time, effort, and patience. It requires leveraging lower-hanging fruit first. And it doesn't mean there is a viable criminal case to be brought in the end. Some of these folks, and you all know which members of Congress I'm referencing, are despicable, but they're not stupid. They likely knew just how far to take it without crossing the criminal line. So, Bradley says, just chill for a few. Whatever is going to happen in the 1-6 criminal investigations is going to happen. And no one will be happier than me if it means some of those despicable individuals are held accountable. End quote. So that said, send your thoughts, questions, comments to letters at cafe.com. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. If you followed any of the first impeachment hearings, you'll remember Dr. Fiona Hill's testimony 
in front of the House Intelligence Committee. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution who served as former President Trump's top advisor on Russia. Dr. Hill's new book, There Is Nothing For You Here, details her journey from an impoverished mining village in northern England to closed-door meetings in the Trump White House, and finally, to the day of her unforgettable testimony. Fiona Hill, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Preet. Great to be with you. It's great to, to talk to you. Congratulations on your book, which is called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. And I guess this is maybe the question you always get out of the box when you talk about your book. But given that you are an American now, and you're writing in America, and you see the title, There Is Nothing For You Here, one wonders, are you talking about the United States? And in fact, you're not. What are you talking about? Well, the title comes from what my dad told me in 1984 as I was finishing up high school and trying to think about what next to do with my life, including applying for college. And he basically said to me, you know, if you do go on to college and you're trying to uh, not just get an education, but think of a profession, a job in the future and a life, you won't be able to come back, you know, to your hometown to here. He said, there's nothing for you here in terms of opportunity because 1984 in the northeast of England in the former coal mining region that I was growing up in was beset by a massive unemployment crisis. Everything had closed down, all the big manufacturing enterprises. And for youth at that juncture, it was 90% unemployment rate for people immediately leaving school. You know, it would take them a very long time to find something uh, permanent or even just semi-permanent. So that was basically the landscape um, as it looked, you know, way back when in 1984. But I also picked the title because, as I've learned in my long years here in the United States, having come over here in 1989, increasingly people in the United States feel the same thing. Either that there's nothing for them here in terms of the politics, they don't see themselves reflected in elites at the top, political elites, members of Congress, etc., and in many cases, too, and particularly the old Rust Belt of the United States, places that have lost their auto manufacturing, their steelworks, their coal mines as well, they start to wonder the same if there's anything for them here, not just in the places uh, where they live, but more generally, how will they find opportunity and will they be excluded from all of the changes in the economy moving forward? When your father said that to you, did he say it with some amount of melancholy or was he just pragmatic? And did you react? by thinking, well, that's an overstatement? Or was everyone agreed and understood that there was nothing for you there? Well, it was a mixture. My dad was ever the pragmatist. Um, he'd grown up in uh, a mining village, what we called a pit village um, in the north of England, about eight miles away from my hometown. And the village had been purpose-built to serve uh, all the mines and a paint factory and a brickworks that had grown up alongside the uh, series of mines that were there. I mean, everybody in that village worked in the mines or one of the other industries. And when everything closed, which they did you know, successively over a period of time, there was nothing for people there either. And my dad had literally got on his bike and cycled to Bishop Auckland, which was the biggest town um, in the immediate uh, vicinity, and had got a job in uh, the local hospital there as a porter, you know, very much on the bottom rung. But he'd already always been aware that you know, times were going to change, places were going to move on, and the places you lived weren't always going to be able to give you a job. And, and he was fortunate in finding one eventually in the general hospital. 
but he wasn't really going anywhere after that in terms of you know socioeconomic mobility. He didn't find another job after that and ended up being a hospital porter for decades. And around in the town, given the high rates of unemployment, that really became the expectation for anybody who went off to get an education that they wouldn't be able to bring the new skills back into the town because there was nowhere to work. So, you know, it was a mixture of pragmatism, but also great melancholy because that meant breaking up families who were multi-generational in the same place. I mean, somebody in my family going back, not just decades, but well over a hundred years had lived in and around Bishop Auckland and managed to find work there. Yeah. You, you say something interesting about your father. He spent a lot of time talking about his identity as a miner and, and other people who were engaged in coal mining and other kinds of work in that field. And even though, you write, he was for decades a hospital porter, he was forever a miner. Why is that? Well, because he'd grown up, uh, first of all, in a multi-generational community of miners. His great-grandfather had been a miner, his grandfather a miner, his father a miner, all of his uncles, great-uncles, cousins, his brother. You know, everybody um, on the male side of the family had gone down into the coal mines And also he'd left school at 14. There hadn't really been much prospect for staying on. And so everything that he'd learned from 14 into his 30s was on the job as a coal miner. And then there was the broader community identity. All of these small villages and small towns were built up around coal mining, or it might be a steelworks or something else, uh, for example, railway, uh, wagon works. That was another uh, big employer in the region. And every part of their social life, not just the working life, revolved around the workplace. Working men's clubs, all kinds of societies that uh, workers in the coal mines could join, literacy societies. I mean, my dad's uh, further education was all done through miners' literary societies that were funded by the Jews that the miners played to the local Durham Miners Association. All of the pastimes there, you know, in and outside of the clubs, the allotments, uh, the garden plots that people had pigeon racing, dog racing, everything from playing dominoes to cards, and then also, most importantly, in the north of England, soccer, football. I mean, this is an area that had spawned some of the great uh, football soccer heroes of uh, the United Kingdom, many of whom had been coal miners or the children of coal miners who'd got out of the mines by playing um, football, by playing soccer. And every local pit um, village would have a soccer team and they're often called, in the case of my dad's village, uh, the welfare, miners' welfare or the local welfare team, because it was an idea of community and well-being. They'd also have a brass band, you know, that would play for um, events, and they would have banners and flags, and they'd take part in all kinds of larger association meetings, galas, and they'd also put on trips and educational uh programs for the kids, you know, the, the children and grandchildren of the miners too. So everything revolved around that. So your whole identity, your family identity, community identity, your personal identity was tied up one way or another by being a miner. Speaking of identity, may we talk about your accent for a moment? Of course. <laughs> because you write about it at some length. And I will say for the record that I have always found your accent to be lovely bordering on enchanting, when you testified (laughs) a couple of years ago, my co-host at the time, Ann Milgram, and I did a special episode of our Insider podcast about your testimony. One of the things that we talked about was just how exceedingly lovely your accent is. So against that backdrop, it was interesting to read you talk about how when you were in England, your accent was something that 
that perhaps in some ways held you back. Can you explain? Yeah, I mean, Britain, um, accent is a marker of class. And even if it's a regional accent, it depends on the region um, and the associations that that has within the rest of the United Kingdom. So the northeast of England, where I'm from, um, has some pretty distinct regional accents. Some of them have names. Um, the accent from Tyneside, Newcastle on Tyne, um, is a Geordie accent. And it has this kind of crazy history about you know how the, the name uh, came about. And the part of uh, the northeast that I come from, which is around the River Weir, um, one of the three great rivers of the northeast, the Tyne, the Tees, and the Weir, um, has a distinctive set of different accents uh, depending on where you're from. And in my locality, because it's the coal fields, uh, many of the um, older people, and my father included, spoke um, a dialect called Pitmatic, with its own you know, distinctive features, um, not just words, but the whole um, phrasing and syntax was uh, quite different from standard English. So I kind of grew up with one of these distinctive accents. If people are listening to me in the United Kingdom, they'd immediately know it was from the North. I mean, obviously, over time, I accent has morphed somewhat uh, because when I first came to the US, although people would um, also express a certain amount of pleasure in listening to me, they'd also say, look, I, I just love listening to you. I could listen to you all day, but I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> so I would have to <laughs> right. not just slow it down, but think very long and hard about the words I was using. Sometimes I'd use a word and I'd think that everybody would understand it and realize I was using a pitmatic of a local dialect word. i go, huh. Hmm. You know, for my entire life, I didn't realise that this wasn't a, a standard English word. There you go, I learn something every day. But in the um, the UK context, a Northeast um, English accent is associated with being blue collar working class, a kind of a guilt by association of growing up in a region that everybody was a worker one way or another. And if you were in middle class, middle class in the British context, or a sort of upper class professional, you would have acquired somewhere along the way the classic clip tones of you know, BBC English, what's known formally as received pronunciation, or we might call Oxford English or the Queen's English. Members of the House of Commons, estimates for the public services will be laid before you. My Lords and members of the House of Commons, other measures will be laid before you. I pray that the blessing of Almighty God may rest upon your councils. And so, you know, speaking the way that I did, using the words that I did, was immediately a marker of someone from the lower echelons of, uh, of society. And right away, people would make comments. And I talk in the book about how that accent and the way that I spoke followed me, you know, all the way, even into the United States when I'd encounter other Brits. And there'd be some great consternation about how someone with my kind of accent, who hadn't changed it to sound more like the BBC, had managed to make it as far as I had. Am I correct that you you write in the book that lots of people in the UK before they enter public life or after they enter public life actually engage in speech training? And I think maybe I made this up because it's been a couple of days, but did Margaret Thatcher do that? She did. And um, she came from a place called Grantham, you know, much further down into the south and sort of Midlands kind of area of uh, the United Kingdom than I did. Although everything's relative in the UK, right? Because it's a pretty small country. So yeah. we're not talking about vast distances here. But she had, you know, something of her own regional accent from, you know, the area around where she grew up. And um, as she ascended up the political hierarchy, um, you know, she had a pretty meteoric rise. Um, she'd herself uh, gone to a grammar school, a very select um, 
educational institution after age 11 and then gone on to Oxford. Uh, but as a politician, she and people around her realised that she needed a bit more polish. So she went to, you know, what people call elocution lessons and also had a whole PR makeover from one of the big PR firms of the time in the United Kingdom, Saatchi and Saatchi, where they, you know, helped model her you know, on the successful female politician that she wanted to be and that others wanted her to be. And it wasn't just about the language, the clip tones. I think they actually helped her bring her voice down, you know, by, you know, um, some uh, significant degrees in, in the register so that she wouldn't sound, you know, high-pitched or shrill in any uh, in any way when she was um, emphasising points. And they also thought about how she should dress, how she should have her hair, you know, the kinds of accoutrements that she should have when she was out and about. I mean, you know, I talk about this in the book as well. Being a woman, there's often a lot of um, extreme makeovers that you have to go through if you're trying to present yourself in in a different settings. And she was the daughter of a, a shopkeeper in Grantham, you know, from a solidly British middle class background, but certainly not from someone who came from the elites. It's interesting. You You said at the beginning of your answer that people around Thatcher thought that she needed a little bit more polish. And that was with respect to accent, maybe also with respect to dress. So the current prime minister, Boris Johnson, I guess he has the accent, right? Went to Oxford. He certainly does. Good afternoon. I have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government, and I have accepted. Does he have the polish or does polish mean something different or does it not matter anymore in modern Western politics? Well, I think it does matter, actually, because, I mean, we obsess about it a lot, don't we? Everybody in politics is always making comments about how people look all the time. I don't think it should matter. And I'm very hopeful that in the world of Zoom, that we'll start to be a little kinder and less critical of each other, you know, after we've all been in little boxes for some time. Just behind us right now, the sleeping dog is no longer sleeping, but is barking. That's uh, Lola, my dog. Um, who doesn't have to worry about appearances. Yeah, she's in the background. I think it was basically the mailman came, the classic dog barks at mailman moment. What accent, what kind of accent does Lola have? Maryland? Yeah, she has, uh, yeah, I think she has a kind of Midwestern um, (laughs) accent. She's uh, she's actually from Wisconsin. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Standard English is spoken there, they say. Yeah, I mean, I think that they say that that's uh, where all of the... um, the best announcers in the United States come from, isn't it? It's supposed to be that neutral accent, Midwestern. So she's got a neutral dog barking accent uh, when she's uh, when she's calling out there. Do you think there? You, you, you talk about this issue of how women have to care about how they dress, and you talk about how your team around you made suggestions when you had to testify uh, in the first impeachment proceeding. Is there a double standard whereby Boris Johnson does not have to comb his hair? Well, Boris Johnson deliberately uncombs his hair, if that makes sense. I always have this kind of image in my head about, you know, when he gets up in the morning, he does a special ruffling um, session (laughs) on his hair and, you know, kind of uh, maybe has an even special mess up my hair comb. Because for Boris Johnson... The anti-comb. He is the anti-comb, exactly. And he's kind of... This is all very studied. Because Boris Johnson is trying to appeal across class in the opposite direction. Because Margaret Thatcher had to appeal to the grandees of the Tory party, you know, which she was most notably not part of. She was a clever girl who had risen up through the grammar school and um, elite education system, but she wasn't, you know, from, you know, the storied Tory party, conservative party background um, as the offspring of a, 
an aristocrat, you know, like Winston Churchill was, you know, for example, uh, from the Dukes of Marlborough's uh, family, or uh, certainly from, you know, other uh, elite, long-established uh, families who've dominated a lot of British politics for generations. Boris Johnson, on the other hand, you know, comes very much from part of the establishment, although he himself has a fascinating background because his family are uh, a product of all kinds of immigration, including um, an Ottoman Turkish uh, political figure who was assassinated. I and mean, there's a fascinating uh, family history that he has. But he went to Eton, you know, probably the most famous school in uh, the United Kingdom, along with Harrow and Westminster. And then he went on from there to Oxford and had all the kind of classic um, lifetime politician jobs from being a journalist and a commentator. And, uh, you know, he hasn't certainly toiled down a coal mine or been behind uh, the counter of a grocery shop or, you know, all the other kinds of other things of the people he's trying to appeal to. So what he does appeal to instead is uh, Britain's great appreciation for the kind of countercultural, um, somewhat comedic, um, slapstick kind of figure. And you know, he he does a lot of physical comedy, lots of self-deprecate deprecating pratfalls along with the you know the tousled hair and the permanently rumpled clothing. And he seeks to entertain and to divert attention away from his incredibly plummy old Etonian accent and to make people think that he's one of them more relatable. And, you know, that is all part of um, the um, reverse Margaret Thatcher, Saatchi and Saatchi uh, recommendations. Right. Is there a version of that that applies to Donald Trump? He obviously does not engage in physical comedy, really. But is there some of that also insofar as he's a self-described billionaire, but he figures out a way to appeal to people at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum? Yeah, because he talks the talk. Uh, he uses the same points of reference. Um, he um, talks uh, in his own words as the man of the people, you know, to sort of appeal to people who have not gone on to college. He tries to sort of sell them also a lifestyle of rich and famous of somebody who's self-made, basically sort of saying, you know, you could be this as well. And he's also listening to people, you know, very keenly following uh, polling and trying to kind of figure out exactly the things to say to engage directly. I think he's a very clever retail politician in the same way that Boris Johnson is. But, I mean, he's, you know, obviously modulated his speech. Um, perhaps he's always been speaking like that from having, you know, grown up on the um, you know, streets of Queens, you know, modulating to fit into the background. It's all a kind of camouflage uh, and sort of a way of, uh, of engaging uh, with those around you and, and basically saying to people what they want to hear. I want to ask you one more thing about your, your childhood and the way in which it affects your later work. And then we'll talk about some things, more recent history. You talk a lot about your brushes with poverty when you were young and the difficulties your family had, which I think is important to understand about you. But you, you also say that that experience uh, gave you a, quote, unique set of insights offering me an entirely different perspective on global affairs from those of the majority of national security experts, end quote. Explain what you mean by that. Well, look, when we study other countries from even the national security perspective and, you know, you're trying to assess what's happening in the broader social dynamics, it's usually in a very abstract way. You know, looking at polling, polling data, survey data, 
looking at the kind of macroeconomic uh, situation and then you know some of the micro level data that you can accumulate and most people are analyzing this from you know a very intellectual perspective and i realized as soon as i got to university and sort of started moving through my research that i was actually a living data point i was the kind of person and my family were the kind of people that people studied you know to kind of assess how the working classes might think about something or how you know, broader uh, societal factors might play out. And so, you know, for me, this wasn't abstract, this was real life. And I think it gave me a very different appreciation of the kind of phenomena that, you know, would I be looking at later on? Because I could certainly relate it to real people. This wasn't just, you know, information that had been collected in anonymous anonymous surveys um, or, you know, kind of uh, basically raw socioeconomic uh, data there was always a human dimension to it for me. Sometimes it was me directly or it was members of my family. And, and does that have a specific impact on you as a national security expert as opposed to a general expert on government? I think it does. And I look, I've met other people who've, you know, come from the same sorts of backgrounds and it's the same perspective for them. I mean, you question things a little more differently and, you know, you have also more of a comparative perspective to bring to the table, just a whole different worldview. And when I was looking, you know, I look at other world leaders, you know, for example, who've come up that way. I mean, I start to ask different questions about them than otherwise, you know, might have been asked, for example. So someone like Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, he comes from a working class background. He rose up by playing soccer, football, first of all, in a pretty hard scrabble neighborhood. Um, Vladimir Putin, you know, grows up in a communal flat in uh, what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Also, by the way, finds his way forward through sports, but playing judo, as well as then, you know, later going to university and joining the KGB. I think it gives you a kind of appreciation for different perspectives of people's worldview. And both Erdogan and Putin have brought along with them through their rise in politics, people that they knew from their childhood. Right. You know, people who played sports with them and others, and they have, you know, just kind of a whole different way. Of course, this is in very different social contexts and cultural contexts but a very different way of looking at things. And, you know, I think an awful lot of people are shaped by those early childhood and personal experiences in ways that, you know, we don't always look at when, you know, either as a historian or a political analyst, we're kind of looking at the lives of often the great men. And sometimes there's a lot of great women of history. <laughs> right. Of course. Let's fast forward a number of years. So then you had a very notable, successful career as a national security expert. And in particular, an expert on Russia. You spent time in Russia. You became an American citizen at some point. And then let's let's jump all the way forward to 2016. And you're at the Brookings Institution. And you get a phone call to come work at the White House. And Donald Trump has just been elected president. And people warn you that maybe that's not the greatest thing to do. You have your own concerns about Donald Trump. Close in time to the inauguration, as I understand it, you you marched in the, in the Women's March, why'd you come to government at that point and for that president? Well, it wasn't for that president, let's just uh, put it that way. Um, I came to the government because I was deeply concerned about national security. I was very worried about what had happened in 2016 with the Russian interference. I mean, I knew there was much more going on than that. and I But I really did feel that something had to be done and, you know, with there was an opportunity to do something, I would have to take it. I did not anticipate that that opportunity would come through being asked to join the administration. Um, I was already commenting on 
some of the after effects of the Russian intervention. I was obviously deeply concerned about the impact that that was having on our polarization, our pre-existing polarization. And it was clear that the, you know, the Russians were exploiting certain vulnerabilities inside the United States. And there were an awful lot of people who were um, being detailed or asked to go into the administration who I'd worked with before. I'd been the national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia from the beginning of 2006 to the end of 2009. I'd gone through the George W. Bush administration and to the first year of the uh, Barack Obama um, administration. And I then spent sort of seven years back at the Brookings Institution working, you know, one way or another on Vladimir Putin, a couple of editions of a book on him. And I knew that, you know, we had a lot of uh, problems to address here, a lot of trouble on our hands. A lot of the people that I knew from previously at the National Intelligence Council, you know, were all still there or, you know, different places in the government. And when I got asked, you know, which as I said, was a bit of a surprise, I thought, well, look, maybe there's something that I can do here. And I genuinely thought at the very beginning that once I got in there into the administration, that people would see the national security imperative of doing something to push back against what the Russians had done and then to try to make sure that they couldn't do it again. Of course, that's when I kind of fully encountered, right. you know, the rather peculiar personality of um, Donald Trump and realized that his political predilections were actually closer to Putin's than they were to, you know, of the other previous presidents. Notwithstanding the concerns I'd already had about misogyny and, right. you know, race baiting and other divisive uh, politics. Was it a close question for you or? About going in? About going in or given your affinity for public service and your, your care for the country was it an easy decision? It wasn't an easy decision because of the concerns that I had about Trump personally. But I did sort of think that, well, you know, he keeps saying he'll behave more presidentially. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and see how this goes. But my major concern was really about the public service aspect. The country was in, you know, some severe danger at that point. I mean, we were ripping ourselves apart already and the Russians had obviously... Um, poured uh, salt on, you know, some pretty gaping open wounds. And, you know, using another metaphor, I sort of felt like our house was on fire. And I'd been, you know, and offered the opportunity to come and help put out the flames. So I thought, well, I should do it. I mean, otherwise, what had I been doing for all this time? <laughs> you know, I'd been in government before and here I am just, you know, pontificating from the nice, you know, cosy perch of the Brookings Institution, <laughs> not stepping up and doing anything. So, you know, I felt like there wasn't much, you know, choice really in the matter, though I really did listen long and hard to all the people who told me not to do it and why they told me not to. As you sit here now, do you have any regret that you came back into government or would you do the same again? I'd do the same again, even knowing what I know. I would have just uh, done a lot more homework on who else was going to be there because I was pretty naive, I think, about some of the players in the political realm. I mean, there's people I just didn't know who they were. You know, I've said publicly before that I knew more about the Kremlin, <laughs> the people in around the Kremlin, than I did, you know, people who ended up in and around the U.S. White House. And that was a bit of a shock to the system. Who were some of those people aside from Trump himself? Well, I mean, a lot of them, you know, still out there, you know, playing out. You know, I, I, I had, let's just say, I had a very different view of Rudy Giuliani from, you know, the person he appears to be today. I, you know, remembered him from being the mayor of New York during 9-11 and the, the prosecutor from the you know, Southern District of New York. Um, I mean, somebody <laughs> you knew from your previous positions. Yes, no. Tell me about it. I had no idea um, of the strange turns that he'd taken. And then there were all the kind of hangers-on people I'd never heard of or people I'd only tangentially heard of and I didn't realise that they were, you know, 
LinkedIn in quite such a uh, you know an acute way into the system of the, the roles that they would play. I think you know people like Alex Jones and Roger Stone that you know Trump would allow people like that to you know essentially start to shape things within his administration. You know the role of Fox News and Fox News commentators and you know how much the you know the influence that the of the media from the outside would have on shaping the policies internally too. Uh, let's just say I learned a lot and I learned more about the United States than I did about Russia in the time that I was there. And I already thought that I knew knew a fair amount from, you know, my previous times in government, but I realized I knew nothing at all, really. What did you learn about yourself? Well, I uh, learned, as I, you know, always thought, thought that, you know, you have to be able to really dig deep. I'd often wondered if I'd be able to sort of withstand those kinds of pressures. You know, when I was a kid back in the north of England, there was all kinds of things got got thrown at me. But usually, you know, there were kind of physical things that you could deal with in real time. A lot of this was, you know, real psychological pressures of people, you know, denouncing you on the outside and saying terrible things about you and and behind your back. People who you didn't know. You should tell some folks, Reince Priebus, I believe it was Reince Priebus, short-term first chief of staff to President Trump. Didn't he coin a nickname for you? Apparently so. I learned this later. Uh, from um, you know journalists who were um, doing interviews for you know piece in which I featured in that apparently called me Russia bitch. Do you have a T-shirt that says that? I don't, but I have some T-shirts with some other things on. <laughs> well, I, I bet you don't have a T-shirt for the other name that you write that you were called. Uh, no, I do not. No. That begins with which letter of the alphabet? Yes, the letter C. Um, I mean, this is uh, I relate in the um, the book. Um, how I learned the very negative and horrible power of that word uh, very early on when I first heard it used and decided to try it up myself at home and uh, had my mother stick a great big giant bar of soap into my mouth to wash my mouth out. <laughs> That's kind of, you know, one of those old Victorian Dickensian approach to parenting in the north of England. <laughs> I can still taste the soap stuck between my front teeth. What, what do you think it was that provoked that kind of nastiness about you in the White House and around the White House? Look, I think this happens to pretty much everybody in public life, right? I mean, I'm sure you've had plenty of nasty things said about you as well. And, you know, people tend to either, you know, they pick the slur that they think is going to hurt the most. I mean, in the case of women. But usually not by people who are on your same team, technically. Yes, but that was only technically because, you know, these guys, particularly these guys saw me as an interloper. They had no idea who I was. No, they weren't really sure how the heck it ended up there. As sometimes myself, I wondered. You know, one of these sort of quirks of uh, networking and, you know, contacts from people I'd worked with uh, previously. And, you know, they certainly didn't want to hear anything that I had to say. And so that kind of genderized vitriol is meant to try to shut you up. But I, you know, heard it all back in the north of England and usually from people who say it to your face, not behind your back. So I think, you know, in part my upbringing, the place I grew up, you know, pretty tough, hard scrabble community had already well prepared me for dealing with this kind of things. As I said, what I wasn't really prepared for was the kind of cowardice that came along with it. People just lambasting you, you know, from a distance on the internet, you know, kind of this sort of insidious stuff, you know, people who are anonymous, just, you know, calling your names and trying to get rid of you and the hundreds of, of threats and threatening comments, you know, using these kinds of words and calling me things like a fascist whore and 
the N-word as well, which I found perplexing and, you know, just like, what is the matter with people? You know, bandying around everything that they could, you know, possibly think of to try to get a rise in the hope that you'll kind of disappear. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Dr. Fiona Hill after this. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Your book is not just memoir, and it doesn't just talk about your participation in the impeachment proceedings and your expertise about Putin, but also a little bit of a trenchant analysis of what is happening in America and what is to come. And you have this sentence that I'd like you to elaborate on. Quote, Russia is America's ghost of Christmas future, a harbinger of things to come if we can't adjust course and heal our political polarization. And I know what you're saying, because you draw parallels to what, what has happened in Russia over the last number of decades and the slide back into autocracy or greater autocracy. But isn't it fair to say that in the case of Russia, there was no multiple centuries long tradition of you know, multicultural and pluralistic democracy, whereas here there is. Is the comparison fair? And, and what do you mean by the comparison? Well, the comparison is obviously meant to shock um, but I do think it's fair because in the case of Russia, there's been many attempts to create a much more pluralistic society going back, you know, into even the imperial period, you know, of upsurge of, you know, the educated members of, you know, the kind of Russian uh, society trying to sort of reach out to heal divisions there and to, you know, put the country on a different footing. But in the 1990s, there really was building up on uh, the reforms that Mikhail Gorbachev had initiated in the end of the 1980s, a real experiment in uh, democratization. And in fact, look, there were books written by American political scientists um, affirming that Russia was on a democratic path and that there wouldn't, it wouldn't turn around. But of course, they hadn't really banked on the kind of leadership that emerged uh, with Vladimir Putin and also the disaffection that people felt for this democratic experiment on a number of uh, fronts. You know, first of all, there was a massive economic collapse in the 1990s. So an awful lot of people felt that, okay, this democratic experiment came along with great poverty and wrenching dislocation. I didn't really get a lot out of this. And then there was also this failure to inculcate the rule of law. And it enables uh, a kleptocratic oligarchic elite to emerge 
uh, who had basically siphoned off the assets of, of the state during privatization. And you know, the uh, failure also to uh, really emphasize the independence of the judiciary, you know, all of these later, and the political party system as well getting hollowed out over a period of time, enabled Vladimir Putin to you know, roll back those sort of freedoms and political gains of the 1990s successively over the last 21 years that he's been in power. It didn't happen all at once. This is what I mean about the United States. Yes, we've had centuries-long experiment in democracy. We've been evolving all the time because we haven't been perfect by any stretch. And, you know, we've had the Civil War. We've had the Reconstruction period that got reversed. We've had the Civil Rights Movement. We've had all kinds of efforts, I mean, giving, expanding the suffrage. We've had so many periods that, you know, where we could have taken steps back, but we've always tried to make steps forward. And right now we're at another of those inflection points. But do you think right now is a more dangerous and fraught inflection point than before? I think it's one of those inflection points that's as fraught as it has been before in some of those other episodes that I was relating. And this is where the sort of similarities with post-1990s Russia come in. Because we're seeing assaults on the independence of the judiciary, you experienced that, and, you know, the whole kind of legal system. We've seen assaults on the electoral system. I mean, by our own president, basically saying no point in, you know, voting because your vote won't count. It's all illegal. You know, the elections are going to be stolen. And, you know, and also to be fair on that front as well, after 2016, there were many people saying that Trump wasn't elected either by the American people. He was elected by Vladimir Putin and the security services. And now that, you know, makes Trump and others feel quite justified in, you know, taking this up a notch to a much larger scale. Even though, of course, the big difference in 2016, and one of the many differences, of course, was that Hillary uh, Clinton conceded the election pretty quickly. She conceded the election. The concession matters. That's what we count on. We count on the concession. It it really matters. And there was a peaceful transfer of authority, just like there was in 2000. You know, Al Gore and George W. Bush as well. I mean, we've, we've established this, even in, you know, really difficult, contested times. We now have a situation where the former guy still says he's the guy and he will be the future guy. And he is just you know, perpetrating an enormous lie about the, the state of our democracy and the presidency and executive power. We've also got the chipping away at the independence of all of our institutions of the state, uh, getting rid of you know, professional employees. And um, this is, you know, the previous administration, replacing them with loyalists, um, removing congressional oversight and the kind of checks and the balances in the system. And then the party system itself is uh, in um, a state of disarray. You know, two of the main candidates in you know previous elections and, and this election have not been, you know, technically part of the party. Bernie Sanders uh, was an, is an independent and, you know, ran as a, a the candidate for the Democratic Party twice. And Donald Trump wasn't even a Republican. And you know, registered Republican to basically usurp uh, the uh, the party, having been you know previously registered as a Democrat, and he has no previous experience, unlike um, you know Senator Sanders, of governance or you know being uh, part of the establishment. He thinks like a businessman, but a particular kind of businessman, a businessman of a, in his own personal family, and thought that he could run the country as such, not just with a you know kind of a clique of cronies, but his family members. It's a bit different from. You know, Russia, Putin's family tends to be in the background. But he's he's basically 
you know, sees himself as independent of the party system unless it's the kind of the loyalty of people around him. It's the Republican Party of Trump or the Trump Republican Party, not any independent uh, entity that he's uh, you know, basically emphasizing. And in Russia, Putin doesn't have a party. There's the ruling party, United Russia, but it's just a vehicle there that he you know, uses from time to time. He's not the head of the party. You know, he's not part of the party, and there's no kind of larger ideological discipline. So, I mean, I'm trying to use with this comparative lens, uh, you know, I'm trying to use this comparative lens to kind of frame the dilemma in, that we're in now. Of course, you know, as you rightly point out, there are so many differences, but it's those similarities that should give us pause for thought. And I'm not saying that this has to happen. I'm just hoping that people will, you know, with that shock of seeing those comparisons will step back and figure out what we have to do to avoid this at all costs. Well, I'll mention something else that would sound shocking to a lot of people, and I don't think it's being mentioned enough. And it's a real future scenario. You know, we talk generally about slides to autocracy and the undermining of our institutions and the trampling of norms and all of that is well and good. But there's a particular thing that, I don't know if you'll agree with me, that whether by legitimate or illegitimate means can come to pass before long, and that is a return of Donald Trump to the White House. That is a very real and feasible possibility. Do you agree? I do. And, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, for us, uh, uh, an impending disaster. And, you know, people say, well, if he wins free and fair, but, you know, all the signs are that that won't be the case. And that's the same in Russia. You know, Vladimir Putin probably, you know, would get um, a majority of the votes, a slim majority, or let's say plurality of the votes. But there are many efforts to suppress the vote so that the turnout is really low, which is just what happened in the recent parliamentary elections in, in Russia. Because, you know, in an opinion polling, you know, uh, people are very dissatisfied uh, with the system that they have. And, you know, the Communist Party of all things, uh, it's not the Communist Party of, you know, our fathers and grandfathers, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, but did remarkably well in the recent parliamentary elections because people are fed up. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them just don't want to vote. And so I think there's a real scenario here in the United States where Donald Trump could win because lots of people don't come out because they uh, just don't see the point. They've been told that the election isn't going to work for them, that their vote doesn't count, it's going to be stolen. And uh, others have actually been actively stopped from voting because of uh, you know, changes or made sure that their vote doesn't count, the redistricting and all the kinds of efforts uh, to actually stop people from voting, to raise the barriers uh, and the hurdles of voting even higher. And also, you know, we've learned now through successive elections that um, you can pretty much um, use the electoral college to your advantage and, you know, win by a very narrow margin there and, you know, not at all um, make progress in the popular vote. So, I mean, these, these are, you know, some of the peculiarities of the American system that actually lend themselves to a demagogue and somebody who is um, not supportive of a democratic process to, uh, you know, basically get themselves into power. Right. And, and the example has been made. You know, the model has been created so that other folks including a number of people who aspire to the presidency on the Republican side as we speak, are borrowing behaviors from Donald Trump. Other people are, are starting to call elections illegitimate. They're taking great steps and pains to make sure that elections can be invalidated. And all of this, I think, is shocking and needs to be talked about. I feel in some ways, for a lot of people in the country who are worried about what Trump was doing to the country, myself among them, once Biden got elected, and we'll get to the 1-6 insurrection in a moment. But once Biden got elected, 
I think some people have tuned out a little bit and they watch the news less and they're a little less worried. And, and I don't think they've really focused on the, on the likelihood. I'm not saying it's super likely, but the potential of Trump regaining the White House. And so my question to you is, based on your observations and the way you talk about Trump, his personality, uh, his proclivities as the president when you were there, what do you think a second Trump presidency would look like in terms of policy, in terms of personnel? I mean, no Fiona Hills are going to be hired by the next Trump White House, right? Yeah, no way. Um, and, you know, I think we would probably anticipate a pretty significant purge of uh, people in the Department of Justice and, you know, many of the other institutions, uh, Pentagon and elsewhere, you know, civilian and other sides of the institutions that stood up um, to Trump. Um, we also have to remember that it's not just about Trump himself, which I think you've alluded to here, because there's an awful lot of other people who see themselves as the heir apparent, or in fact the preferences <laughs> instead of Trump, because many people have hitched themselves to his bandwagon and his style, knowing that he's um, not necessarily competent, but that he will, you know, kind of go along with some of their agenda items to, you know, basically have himself in power because he wants to win, he wants to be back, he doesn't feel that, you know, he, he's gone in the first place. A lot of them have, you know, pretty. Uh, clear agenda uh, items that they want to push forward and they're prepared to make that trade-off and have him there as long as they can push their agendas. And so, you know, there, there will be um, an awful lot of people pushing forward there and then, you know, trying to get rid of people within the system that are standing in the way. Uh, I think there's an awful lot of people who would be very comfortable with a minority rule that we've seen in, you know, in other countries where, you know, the majority of people's votes really doesn't matter and doesn't count. And I think it's more likely to happen when people aren't paying attention. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to speak out. I mean, although the book talks about a lot of other things, you know, what it does underscore is you know, how fragile our democracy is right now because, you know, right now the system isn't delivering for the vast majority of people. And that's, again, also fuel for demagoguery, for populist leaders who can say, well, look, we're going to fix it for you. Just, you know, kind of give us your vote so we can stay in power for a longer period of time. Putin, you know, for example, in Russia, you know, initially, if he'd stepped aside after his first two terms and then, you know, he went off to be prime minister, I think we'd have a very positive assessment of him, you know, in relative terms in Russia of what he did in that period, turning the country around, uh, putting it back on its feet. You know, our view of him has changed as he's just kept on staying and staying and staying and staying because he's saying that he's the only solution. People around him say there's no Russia without Vladimir Putin. Nothing will get fixed from a pothole to, you know, the standoff with the evil West that's, you know, trying to bring Russia to its knees without Vladimir Putin. Right. It's very easy to envisage a scenario where, you know, kind of a, a significant portion of voters are persuaded that only by keeping, you know, the same group, uh, Trump and people around him and the, the successor to Trump, who we might or might not, you know, name in power for an indefinitely, will they be able to see the sort of achievements of things that they want? And even though, you know, there might be a majority of the population might, you know, kind of like some of those things. That's not how the process is supposed to is supposed to work here. So I, you know, um, worry a great deal when I look at that. I mean, Vladimir Putin found a way to amend the Russian constitution, and you know, we I, we shouldn't rule that out. We should not rule that out in the United States context. It's funny. I've been thinking lately that one of the most important provisions of the Constitution, in my mind now, which came fairly late in the history of the country, was the provision. That prohibits more than that prohibits a person from serving as president for more than two terms. Right, and that happened remarkably after recently. Yeah, after FDR, and when he died in office, yeah, got elected four times, and and you know one of the most revered presidents of all time, 
arguably saved the country from fascism. And what a smart thing we did as a country. And it's not easy to amend the constitution here. I don't know how it compares to amending the constitution in Russia, but that is a very important protection. And I still like to think that that's a very hard thing to overcome, that, that whatever Trump does, the bar on serving more than twice as president would be a very hard thing to change. But you know, you never know. And I think people need to be cognizant of that. Um, I want to talk, you at sort of close to the end of your book, as you go somewhat chronologically, talk about the moment that you testify first behind closed doors and then in public with respect to the Ukraine affair. One question I have for you, and we were talking about uh, internally in the team, do you, do you have an alumni group <laughs> with, with the other witnesses? Do you and Marie Yovanovitch and Alexander Vindman and others do you have like a bi-weekly beer or something? Uh, we haven't because of COVID, but, um, you know, perhaps we should. But we do um, all keep in, in touch with each other. I think, you know, when people have got, gone through. I'd like to come. If you if you have yeah, that, okay. I'd like to come. And <laughs> when, uh, I'll, buy the, I'll buy the first round. I'll buy the first beer, good, yeah. I mean, when you've all been through something like this, um, obviously, um, it does tend to sort of forge different sets of relationships. But, you know, there were many people who were snarled up in uh, the impeachment trial who had to, um, you know, give... A testimony as well, people who you know certainly didn't anticipate doing that and who were still on their jobs actually within the government and still continue to be um, admirable public servants and you know they really should be commended for really sticking um, sticking to uh, their oath uh, to the constitution there. So it wasn't just you know those of us who tended to kind of be more in the spotlight but many others who were still there in the government. What was the hardest part about testifying for you? For me, it was just really the aspersions that were being cast, uh, not just against me, but against all of my colleagues. You know, this idea that we were, as you know, Jim Jordan and others kept putting it, deep state coup plotting bureaucrats. It's a total mouthful being able to you know, say all of this. <laughs> Don't put that on a T-shirt. No. And that somehow we were disloyal, traitors, you know, un-American by stepping forward to tell the truth and to um, uphold our oath of office. And that's really when I knew that we were in big trouble as a society. I mean, it wasn't the vast majority of people. I have to say that all of us got hundreds of letters from around the country, you know, commending us on our public service. But it was just this idea that, um, you know, you could be portrayed in that regard. I mean, really, the um, one point, you know, some of the Republican members of Congress, people like Matt Gates, were basically saying this was a sort of a Soviet-era show trial of the president. And I was like, oh, come on. I mean, I know a Soviet-era show trial. <laughs> you know, I see one. I've studied plenty of them. And it was us who were being, uh, you know, basically put on this as saboteurs, you know, kind of accused of, you know, the kinds of things, you know, under Stalin where they denounce, uh, people would denounce each other because, you know, maybe they wanted their neighbor's house, uh, their neighbor's flat rather, or their neighbor's wife or the neighbor's wife's fur coat. And it was all these kind of crazy denunciations. And that's kind of what we were experiencing. And that, um, you know, certainly got my back up, I have to say, and made me quite angry. Right. And I felt that's kind of one of the reasons why I sort of felt that I had to put myself in that opening statement for the testimony just to set the record straight about who I was, just like who everybody else was. Years later, I can say with confidence that this country has offered me opportunities I never would have had in England. I grew up poor with a very distinctive working class accent. In England, in the 1980s and 1990s, this would have impeded my professional advancement. This background has never set me back in America. For the best part of three decades, I've built a career as a non-partisan, non-political national security professional 
focusing on Europe and Eurasia, and especially the former Soviet Union. Well, so there were some denunciations that's true. And some of those denunciations came from people who you you might be proud to have as adversaries and enemies. But there were many, I think many, many, many more people who were laudatory, who hailed you, who felt that, who felt a revelation that we have public servants like you and Colonel Vindman and others who quietly behind the scenes do the work to protect the country. And, you know, you were, you were the object of quite a bit of adulation also from other folks. How did you handle that? And the, did that come as a surprise? Well, that was the most surprising um, aspect of it. And, um, you know, I never considered that that would be, uh, would be the outcome. I mean, one of the, you know, person, I mean, who was really in the spotlight of this, um, as well as, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who was really harshly and unfairly treated, is, of course, Marie Ivanovich. And her removal had been the precipitating factor for everything because everybody around the government knew that this was grossly unfair, unwarranted, and a sign of, you know, something pretty nefarious going on in the background because she was one of the most respected members of the diplomatic corps and one of the very few women um, at her level. So there was a sort of a double attack there, not just on, you know, the best of the best of our diplomatic service, but also one of the few women, you know, at the very top of the profession here. And so, you know, as soon as she was removed in the spring of 2019, everybody knew that uh, we were in big trouble here and that everything had gone awry and there was real effort to undermine, you know, US foreign policy and national security. And ultimately, as it became apparent over the course of the whole uh, depositions and testimony, uh, an attempt to privatise, you know, foreign relationships and national security, which was, you know, shocking even in the larger context of many other shocking things. And so, you know, as I said, I hadn't really um, thought about how this would all be received. But for me and for the others, it was important to speak out against this. I mean, it's always important to tell the truth. Yeah. I mean, we bring our kids up to tell the truth. I don't know what you know members of Congress are telling their kids at the moment. Don't pay any attention to mummy and daddy when we lie on television. <laughs> Something like that. You know, please just tell me the truth about what you did. You know, kind of you know, don't do as I do, but do as I say. I mean, that's never the best sort of parenting approach. I really do wonder about that because I mean, certainly you know, when I uh, was growing up, telling lies had consequences. No, they just don't admit it. They don't admit that they lie. I mean, that's the way you get around it. They, they don't concede that they lie. And with respect to some things, the argument grows, Trump actually believes some of the lies, even though there's contrary evidence. Oh, I think he does. I think he does, actually, just from yeah. first-hand observation. I think he's sort of talked himself because he can't um, basically countenance the truth and certainly admit it to himself. Early in that first impeachment process in October when you came and testified behind closed doors as an initial matter. Did you have a view on how things would play out in the House and the Senate? Did you at any point think, well, maybe the president will be impeached and maybe he'll be convicted? Or did you have the opposite view that we'll put this all out in the record? It's my patriotic duty to do so. But at the end of the day, it will fail in the Senate. Or were you not thinking about that at all? In the initial phase, I didn't think about that. I thought the, the latter, that it was my duty to do this needs to be all out on the record. I believe in representational government. I believe in congressional oversight, which it seems that members of Congress are throwing out the window, you know, that check and balance on executive power. But I, it was only really kind of later as we got to the public testimony and when I saw the way that things were playing out by a lot of people just thinking of this as just a political game and the statements that they were said where I thought, well, you know, they're just making a mockery of all of this. 
And, you know, history will not judge them or any of us well for not taking this more seriously. Knowledge is the international community, honestly, because, you know, you have to also you know, bear in mind as a, an immigrant and, you know, lots of family members in other places. I was certainly hearing an earful, you know, from other people watching this elsewhere and just saying, what on earth is going on in the United States? Because the United States, certainly for my family and, you know, relatives, has been a beacon and the gold standard for how to run elections and, you know, how to do things, competence of government. And we were just showing rank incompetence and uh, disregard for um, any kind of due process, being a political or otherwise. And that was a shock to people, you know, how far the United States had fallen. I mean, a great delight for somebody like Vladimir Putin or, you know, others who uh, would rather that the United States was consigned to, in their view, the ash heap of history and just to kind of become a middling power that everyone can disregard. But for others who are looking to the United States for leadership, this was, this is a tragedy. Were you surprised that Trump ended up getting impeached a second time? Well, I think for all of us, getting impeached a second time, <laughs> getting impeached the first time is a bit of a, it's a, it's a shocking achievement, isn't it? Um, I don't know whether that's a double win or, you know, what what this is there. But, um, you know, from the events of uh, January 6th and everything that he had uh, said um, uh, in the interim between, you know, January 2020 and uh, January of 2021, um, I mean, there has to be some responsibility and some accounting for all of this. I mean... But things got worse after that first impeachment trial. Uh, President Trump became the biggest threat to the US elections that you know we've seen since the Russians in 2016. And people like my colleague Chris Krebs, who were at the Department of Home and Security, you know, trying to shore up the election, found themselves having to speak out against their own president rather than against you know foreign threats. The foreign threats were easier to deal with. I want to ask you another question about January 6th and about, you know, this whole group of people, you can call them many things. You can call them the Trump base. You can call them folks who believe they've been forgotten. You and others talk about the sort of economic argument for why people have certain beliefs and follow Trump. But, you know, there's another point of view, and I've seen it being offered by various folks, including Tom Nichols, who writes this, and I I wonder your reaction. Uh, He writes, quote, the January 6th rioters were an extreme example of a stupefying level of narcissism. These insurrectionists were not disenfranchised or oppressed people trying to engage in a peaceful assembly. Rather, the whole event was a day camp outing for middle-aged, middle-class, gainfully employed Americans who wanted to be heroes storming Congress and then go back home to sell real estate, attend work retreats in Mexico, and brag about all of it on Instagram, end quote. Is there any truth to that? I think there is some truth to that as well. But I mean, everybody's been sort of feeding off this idea of dislocation and loss. Um, And I think, you know, what uh, Tom says certainly resonates. There's also some other research that's been done by a professor at Chicago University, Robert Pape, um, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, P-A-P-E, who showed that um, the vast majority of people who took part in the insurrection, the storming of uh, the Capitol, were coming from counties across the United States, so at the county level, not just the state level, that were undergoing rapid demographic change. So literally the faces of people around them are changing and, you know, they're kind of not keeping up with it. It feels very threatening to them. And they'd also, although they'd, you know, uh, been, as um, Tom Nichols suggests, you know, solidly middle class, um, 
maybe had some kind of financial problems in the wake of the Great Recession, the financial crisis of 2008-2009. So they definitely felt somewhat unmoored. And I think, you know, looking for something to pull them out of this funk, um, thinking about, you know, how they would uh, move themselves forward, how they could be part of something that's sort of bigger than themselves. All of these factors come to play. I think the problem that we have now is there's so many layers to all of this. And obviously in the book, you know, I basically focus on the things that I know the best that I've seen with my own eyes. I wanted it to be authentic, you know, empirical, things that I could observe rather than stuff that I was talking about just second or, you know, third hand. But I think there's all elements of all of this in there. And, you know, we are at one of the, again, at these moments where we're especially vulnerable and ripe for demagoguery and tyranny. So, you know, we have to unpack all of this. And that's why I think that the exercise of understanding what happened in January 6th is very important. You know, again, it's not just who these people were, why they did it, but, you know, how did the whole environment around them sort of shape what they did in the larger context? And that includes what happened on Facebook, you know, failures of law enforcement, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I've quoted you recently uh, more than once as describing the January 6th insurrection as a dress rehearsal. Yeah. You and I have been mostly talking about, you know, what may happen politically in the future with Trumpism and Trump himself. How much do you worry, given your expertise on these issues in in a number of countries? How concerned are you about significant violence in America? I'm worried a lot about it. So just yesterday or the day before, I got a nasty phone call on my home phone, which I probably should switch off again, as I did during the testimony. Somebody saying, you know, kind of, why are you, Fiona Hill, inciting civil war? And I think it's because I described in one media interview that I thought the United States was in a status of cold civil war right now because we've already got violence. We've had so many episodes of violence over the last several years. And, you know, President Trump has encouraged so much of this. You know, we remember, um, you know, during the uh, violence around the Black Lives Matter movements and the Proud Boys, you know, instead of asking them to, you know, cease and desist, he tells them to, you know, basically stand by. And, you know, all the kind of encouragement, the fighting talk, the literal fighting talk, you know, that he uses... In, you know, kind of some of the research work that I've done, you know, back in the past on ethnic and civil violence, Trump would be called a violent entrepreneur. You know, basically somebody who, you know, kind of uh, talks the fighting talk to get people all stirred up. And many of the uh, places that I've looked at that have ended up in um, civil wars, often on an ethnic basis, not just on a you know political basis, have been when there's been a, a tipping point in, in society, either in the economy, you know, um, uh, overwhelming levels of uh, inequality and, you know, people getting incredibly dissatisfied. And, you know, you see that in the, you know, the uprisings around the Arab Spring, you know, for example. Or when there's a demographic tipping point where kind of people feel that they're losing their place in society. Uh, that can be either through immigration or just demographic change. Um, and a lot of the demographic change in the United States has been driven by intermarriage and birth rates, not by immigration. Immigration is some of the lowest it's ever been, you know, in uh, in U.S. history, contrary to what you would think. That was a surprising statistic. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I mean, if anybody wants to have a look more at this, um, there's a, you know, my colleague at Brookings, William Frey, Bill Frey, um, F-R-E-Y, has some amazing, you know, interactive uh, information and maps and things, you know, looking at the at the census from 2020, very deep analysis showing a lot of this uh, information. And so we're at one of those tipping points. Then you also look at polling. And in social um, surveys that I participated in, you know, years back, again, looking at ethno-political and other civil violence, 
when you reach a point where about 12% of respondents said that they'd be willing to um, uh, basically commit an act of violence uh, to further whatever cause it is uh, that they're promoting and they feel that there's no other way to make their voice heard, then you're in real trouble. And we're, that's where we are right now. And we were seeing in polling that people see uh, the opponent in um, uh, really stark terms and the primary identification in the United States now tends to be Democratic or Republican, blue or red. You know, the people call it tribal, but, you know, you can call it whatever you want. I mean, we've basically got people seeing themselves getting divided into these hostile groupings. They don't want members of their family to marry into the opposing side. And again, this could be an ethnic group. I mean, I've seen this in places like Armenia and Azerbaijan, the Gorna Karabakh, all kinds of places that I've um, you know studied in the past where you've had these um, uh, outbreaks of really nasty violence. And also people kind of saying that they're so opposed to the side that they think that, um, you know, they become dehumanized and that violence is the only way to you know, teach people a lesson. So we're seeing all of that right now. That is why um, I and many other people are extremely worried. And anybody who's come and turned the lens onto the United States from outside who have um, experienced or studied war-torn societies uh, is, is deeply troubled by the things that they're seeing here in the United States now. And if we saw this in another country that was one of our closest allies, we'd be trying to stage an intervention. Yeah, and that's one of the best ways of thinking about it. And I don't mean a military intervention. I mean a intervention where we'd you know take them off right. <laughs> to one side, say, hey, you need a bit of mediation. You know, we did that very successfully in Northern Ireland. I keep, um, of course, Northern Ireland's having a resurgence of the troubles in the wake of Brexit. But I think we could do with some of our, you know, European colleagues coming and giving us a bit of a hand here, bringing some of that expertise back again. Fiona Hill, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us. I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank you for what you've written in this book. It's very important. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. There is nothing for you here. Finding opportunity in the 21st century. Fiona Hill, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been a pleasure. My conversation with Dr. Fiona Hill continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So folks, lately I've been thinking a lot about and talking a lot about and sometimes writing about the issue of whether or not we can have good faith debate and what the nature of good faith debate is in this country. And so I want to end this week's show addressing a debate that's been happening, good faith disagreement among people who I like and respect on both sides of the question. Over the past few days, I've been seeing a number of questions about this issue. And it is this, whether Attorney General Merrick Garland should appoint a special counsel to investigate the origins of the January 6th insurrection rather than having DOJ do it itself. Here's an example of a question from Twitter user Rich H. Rants. Quote, been seeing a lot of debate about whether it would be more effective to have a special counsel or let the DOJ and Congress handle January 6th investigations. What do you think is the best way to go? Hashtag Aspreet, end quote. As the listener points out, this question has sparked something of a debate on legal Twitter. And there are people who I deeply respect on both sides of the question. In fact, a number of them are colleagues of ours at CAFE. So I thought I'd take a moment at the end of the show to summarize that debate and give you a sense of my own thoughts briefly. So a quick reminder first for those who are a little foggy on the definition of special counsel, what that is and what the circumstances are that give rise to one. 
So you may remember that there used to be something called the Independent Counsel Statute in 1999, but that expired. And so there isn't today a federal statutory law governing the appointment of a special counsel. There are DOJ regulations that address that issue. And it's those regulations under which special counsel Bob Mueller was appointed several years ago. And the regulations essentially say this, that the attorney general will appoint a special counsel when there's a determination that criminal investigation of a person or matter is warranted and that investigation or prosecution of that person would present a conflict of interest for the department or other extraordinary circumstances. Make a note of that. Would present a conflict of interest for the department. Uh, And also that under the circumstances, it would be in the public interest to appoint an outside special counsel to assume responsibility for the matter. So there are a bunch of folks who I like and respect and who contribute to CAFE who are solidly in favor of the appointment of a special counsel. Notably, Asha Rangappa, former FBI agent, who's very smart, has a lot to say on the issue. She says there's a lot of pros to appointing a special counsel. Among other things, she says it's warranted. And she points out, quote, contrary to what some have suggested, a conflict of interest is not a requisite for appointing a special counsel. Appropriate grounds include that an independent prosecutor would be in the public interest or that there are extraordinary circumstances, as I just read to you from the regulation. She also suggests that the appointment of a special counsel would signal that getting to the bottom of this is a priority for the Justice Department. She also suggests it could provide for a more efficient investigation because DOJ has a lot of things on its plate. She recognizes that it's not an overwhelming case in favor of special counsel, that there are some cons as well. For example, she says it creates a new space for politicization, as we saw with Mueller. Attacks on the special counsel, attacks on the FBI, attacks on DOJ. She's not alone in her support for a special counsel to investigate the insurrection. John Dean, former White House counsel, says it is long past time for A.G. Garland to appoint a special counsel. He says, using an exclamation mark, our democracy is at stake, for heaven's sake. Noted Harvard Law School professor Larry Tribe agrees with John Dean that there should be a special counsel. Max Boot, the conservative-leaning historian and foreign policy analyst who has been a guest on this show, has written an op-ed in favor of a special counsel. The arguments in favor of special counsel in part seem to rest on the idea that it sends a message and a signal that this is very important. And given its importance, there should be one person or one agency duly appointed to investigate this that is not distracted by other concerns, issues, investigations, or prosecutions. And I get that. There are folks, by the way, on the other side of the coin, including my friend and former colleague, Dan Goldman, who focuses on the question of the conflict of interest. He writes, quote, there is no conflict of interest that warrants a special counsel. Garland was an apolitical judge until this year. Just because Trump turned the DOJ into his political arm in court does not mean that's what DOJ is. Garland is perfect to handle this. Barb McQuaid, my friend and former U.S. attorney from Detroit, says also, quote, there is no need to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate a former president. Unlike a sitting president, a former president is not the AG's boss. In fact, who's to say DOJ has not started investigating Trump already as part of January 6th, end quote. And Jill Weinbanks, also noted lawyer, former Watergate prosecutor, says as well, no special counsel needed. AG is not investigating his boss as he would have been in Watergate or even Whitewater. So, so the difference of opinion, it seems to me, among these good faith, super smart, former federal prosecutors and legal analysts is the question of the conflict of interest. And typically, as we saw with Mueller, when you have the possibility of malfeasance in and around the White House 
and that person is still in the White House. You want to have someone outside of the Justice Department that can be weaponized, as we saw Trump try to do, someone outside of that department doing the investigation. That's not present here. Asha points out very wisely that there is also a provision for the appointment of a special counsel if there are extraordinary circumstances, which certainly exist here as well. A once-in-a-lifetime insurrection is no small matter. A um, couple other points on each side that I'll mention that, that I haven't so far. One, a special counsel, as we saw with Bob Mueller, would also probably be preparing a report. So if and when there were prosecutions, and even if there weren't, we might get some kind of fuller accounting for transparency of what happened in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th and on January 6th itself. That arguably is a benefit of a special counsel, which you wouldn't get from the DOJ. They're not in the business DOJ of preparing reports like special counsels are. And a point on the other side, it may have been true that there is some efficiency to putting together a special counsel and an office, but we're now many months away from January 6th. Lots and lots of investigations and prosecutions have happened, and it takes time for a special counsel to be appointed. There's difficulty in figuring out who the proper person would be. There are not that many folks who are not on the record about January 6th and whether they think those folks were acting in good faith or whether they were traitors to their country. So finding someone to do it who will be viewed as impartial by everyone would be difficult. And it takes time to staff up and get resources going. So for my own part, I understand the arguments on both sides, but I'm slightly on the side of the folks who say, let DOJ handle it. There's no reason to believe they can't handle it, and they're already underway. Part of the reason I'm addressing this question is not just for the substance of it, but as an exercise in showing that people can have strong feelings about a particular issue, even a legal issue, and have good faith disagreement about it, and debate with integrity and honesty, and uh, respectfully. And I think we need more of that. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Fiona Hill. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 669- 247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, Chelsea Simmons, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. 
It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 